need to focus on humanity and ensuring that all people have access, the same access that white people have had to things now more than ever. So equity isn't a handout to people of color. It is giving people of color power to tell the stories themselves about their communities, not having a white person go into the community and make assumptions. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. And today uh, we're going to talk about a a new movement and organization in in public media um, called Public Media for All. And um, it seems uh, like the name is very obvious to me in that maybe public media should be for all. Right, yeah. But embedded in that idea that we have to call an organization public media for all that maybe um, that hasn't been as true as it should be. Yeah, I think, Paul, that you know, we're talking today about um, having greater representation at public media stations, which are radio stations, sometimes also television stations. Uh, as far as uh, racial diversity goes, you know, uh, these are institutions that it was very easy to label them as uh, as as very very white institutions as recently as um, ten or twenty years ago, and that's uh, that's a that's a trend. The 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 less whitening of these kinds of media organizations that our guests today, I think, are interested in uh, pushing in the right direction. Yeah, and not, and not only that, but also, you know, a, a much more uh, radical examination of the conditions that, uh, that perpetuate that, right? Yeah. That perpetuate uh, the whiteness, uh, you know, and, and, and noting that um, part of the Part of the reason this is happening now in particular is that there have been some very well highlighted, documented, and reported instances of what would basically come down to racial discrimination right. and, um, at, at prominent uh, public media organizations throughout the United States. Much of this has come to light in the last year or two. Sure. Yeah, it's, you know, it's been sort of uh, alongside of and next to and adjacent and simultaneous to the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's been a little bit of how it's been uh, framed. I, I want to let Radio Survivor's listeners know that Radio Survivor, we hear we love we love the media landscape in the United States and the world. We talk about radio history a lot. It's been 100 years of radio in the world and in the United States. Uh, we also we primarily focus our love for radio on community radio stations, which um, I, I'm, I'm bringing this up because I worked at a community radio station that was uh, so large that it functioned like a public media institution. But uh, people I would interact with, friends who didn't, under, who didn't get as nerdy about the media landscape as I did, would mistakenly assume that my radio station was NPR. They would call it NPR. And Believe me, if you ever want to watch someone at a party's eyes gloss over and then try to figure out how fast they can get away from you, try to explain to them, which I'm doing right now on my radio show, try to explain to them why why you don't call uh, any public media radio station NPR, right? It gets complicated. But mm-hmm. Paul, what I'm doing here is I'm hoping that we can begin to give an introduction to the media landscape in the United States so that listeners have a better framework of understanding uh, what kind of radio stations we're talking about? We're talking about um, 
public radio stations that tend to be among the larger uh, well, right. Sponsored. I mean, the public media system, let's just say this, right, is a system of, of radio stations that are aligned together through networks. What's, <laughs> what's important to understand here in, in the U.S. is that public media is not actually owned and operated by the U.S. government, right, which is otherwise the case in most of the rest of the world. So they're independent stations that are nonprofits. Sometimes they're associated with a large organization like a university. In many cases, uh, they're independent nonprofits like Oregon Public Broadcasting or WNYC in New York, right, who are dedicated to broadcasting in the public interest. They tend to be networked together through institutions like National Public Radio, which yeah, is... Yeah, which, kind of, which provides programming to them, but which, doesn't manage them. Correct, exactly. They provide programming, and these stations are known as affiliates of that programming. There's also... So you'll hear, you'll hear the most popular NPR programs on all of these stations, which lead listeners to assume that all these stations... Um, are, are more intimately connected than they are. They're very independent in the United States. Correct. That's they're an, very that's independent. An important thing to talk and, about. And, and they're often funded, or most of them are funded through something called the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is itself an independent organization funded through tax dollars. So they provide funding and grants for programming, for operations, and things like this. But again, they do not own or operate any of the right. stations they well, are not responsible you, for uh you know for them at, at at a broad level um and cpb funding also goes to community radio stations and community media institutions right. as well if they can do the paperwork yeah they but, can the, get but the, you know the the fundamental sort of you know there is no hard line between what is a public radio station and what is a community radio station right it's a good point uh the the stations we are talking about tend to be uh, larger organizations, bigger staffs, larger budgets. They tend to be professional. I mean, yeah. fundamentally, what they and tend we, to be professionally run and operated. The people right. who are on the air, the people who operate the station, right. down the line, staff. are paid staff. There tends not to be volunteer programming or programmers. Tends not to be. Right. Yeah, and uh, that's a really important. You now, you you were mentioning how CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, provides funding for these stations. It's also important to note that these stations really do depend a lot on listener funding, which plays a huge role, I think, in yes. the story that we're talking about today on Radio Survivor. Again, unique to, to the United States, very unique to the United States in, in the world of broadcasting, that our public media is only semi-public funded and that much of the funding comes from individual and corporate donations. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, that it's unique to the United States, because you know we're going to get into the interview very quickly here on Radio Survivor with our guest, uh, Sway Stewart, who is um, you know a member of the main organizing committee for Public Media for All, this group that is pushing for these public media organizations around the United States to be more, um, more uh, inclusive. to do better, yeah. yeah, to do better and uh, make, make sure that their non-white uh, reporters, employees... Uh, thrive and feel welcome and don't have to deal uh, with what they're currently uh, having to deal with. Uh, so, you know, it's, we're going we're gonna to have that conversation here on Radio Survivor, but I want to have in the background this idea that um, because the United States is unique in having these stations sort of fend for themselves in ways that are, that, that radio stations in other, you know, in other nations or in another world as possible scenario in the United States would never have to um, have these structures. 
I mean, right. that's what Raid and, Survivor and, and, is, and, and is let me about. let me say that while the structure of being reliant upon uh, individual and corporate donations, as we'll hear in the interview, contributes to the complexity of the problem, we don't mean to say that it that the problems of equity and inclusion and diversity are exclusive to American public media. But oh, gosh, yeah. but but you know we, we ha- but this is this is what we're talking about is here in the United States and you know all of these things are are related together. I also I hope people don't think that we are we are simply throwing stones at Radio Survivor here at public media Community stations themselves have the same and issues oh, with, yeah. when and it comes to, to you know diversity, equity, and inclusion within their own uh, both paid staff ranks and their own volunteer ranks, and uh, you know and so much of the what we're going to talk about today, um, both in terms of principle and in, and in actuality, I think is is equally applied. So let's turn now to our interview with uh, members of the main organizing committee for Public Media for All. Well, one of those organizers is Sachi Kobayashi, and our guest today on the program is Sway Stewart. Can you tell us a little bit, like, basically set it up? What is uh, Public Media for All? What is this effort? Yeah, thanks for having us um, on the show. So Public Media for All is a coalition that's led by people of color working in the public media industry, and we're really wanting to raise awareness of the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our industry. Um, Our goal is to share solutions for both individuals and organizations in our industry. And, you know, we recognize that we can't do a really good job in supporting our communities um, if we don't have diversity, equity, inclusion at every level of the organization. So that's really what we're pushing for. And what is bringing this issue to the fore right now? Why, why create uh, this organization at this moment in time? Yeah, well, um, unfortunately, we have seen in our industry some fallout uh, from some really well-known organizations and stations. Uh, St. Louis Public Radio, Minnesota Public Radio, WNET in New York, uh, WAMU in D.C., And it's, uh, you know, we recognize that while this fallout was taking place much over the summer, uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with all different types of employees across the industry. And a lot of stations are dealing with issues around, you know, having a workplace culture that is not inclusive, Um, having having an organization that is not intentionally doing work to address the lack of diversity. And, and really, um, you know, this is not something that we can continue to ignore as an industry. We have to recognize that uh, for us, again, to be able to serve our communities, to, to serve the, uh, the demographics, the future demographics of this, of this country, that we need diversity uh, so much more in our programming in our reporting, you know, in our leadership. And we really wanted to make uh, a statement around that. And uh, unfortunately, we, we hadn't really heard too much about one of, what some of the larger national stations in our industry were doing. 
whether it's NPR, PBS, uh, CPB, uh, or APT, a lot of the conversations that have been taking place haven't been shared publicly with, with the industry. And so, you know, Sachi and myself, we met, we were talking a lot about what needed to be done in the industry, uh, the lack of conversations taking place, and we decided to create a coalition of folks um, led by people of color and pulling together an effort to really address this, you know, nationwide, stationwide, industry-wide. So Sway, uh, you mentioned that uh, there's been some fallout at some prominent uh, public media institutions around the country. You mentioned specifically uh, one of them is, say, St. Louis Public Radio. Uh, I mean, what is this fallout? I mean, what is actually happening at these stations? What, 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 what are we seeing? So, so yeah, so, so the specific instance, uh, well, first of all, a lot of these instances are being written by people of color uh, from organizations, St. Louis Public Radio, uh, for example, uh, they've been posting on Medium. And so they themselves, because of fear of retaliation, professional retaliation, sometimes aren't naming themselves in these instances. Um, but, you know, in August, one of the members of that organization flat out said that, you know, they had brought some concerns around, uh, you know, microaggressive behavior from either donors, you know, people who uh, put in a lot of funding to support stations, uh, or from sources, from actual sources in reporting. Um, when they brought those microaggressive behaviors to their leaders, uh, they're not receiving the attention that they need. They're not uh, being elevated by by leaders in terms of, you know, really digging into the situation, having a workplace investigation, or or really creating and working to create a safe, you know, workplace for people of color. And so, you know, that's just one example. You know, as Sachi had mentioned, uh, there are also organizations where leadership have either um, been asked to resign or to, um, or have felt forced to leave. Uh, we saw it, uh, WAMU, uh, we saw JJ Yor leave, you know, GM station leaders, it's their obligation. It's their responsibility to ensure that workplaces are safe and that, you know, there are, uh, opportunities for people to thrive in workplaces. And um, when a leader doesn't address things like sexual ha harassment allegations, when they don't address, uh, you know, things that can amount to a toxic workplace culture, it usually there is an individual within a, an institution, an institution uh, that they've been deemed like, you know, that they're, um, that they are really good at their job. They are, you know, that they maybe have been at an organization for decades, and uh, you know, because of their reputation, um, an organization leader might not want to oust them, and instead they will allow the uh, the culture um, to to spiral um, because they fear that they will lose donors, that they will lose um, that reputation if they let go of a particular individual. And so that's what we've been seeing at some organizations, um, you know, this not wanting to rock the boat 
and just letting, you know, really talented reporters walk away. Um, and, and then the culture never, the culture issue never gets fixed. I think this is something which I think anyone who's worked in any sort of institution can can probably identify with, but certainly, you know, we see it in in, in community radio and in universities as well, right? I mean, I think what you're saying here is is that people uh, of color are experiencing um, various types of, of both, you say, microaggressions, and I'm sure sometimes aggressions, aggressions, um, but are going unlistened to uh, by leadership. And, and often, I think, you know, it seems like it is to preserve not just these donor relationships, but probably relationships or uh, the place of, of their stars. If, if I, I'm going to guess here, right? So sometimes exactly. very prominent on-air personalities who, you know, because of their place and their prominence are also, you know, highly tied, frankly, to station revenue, right? Because if they, if they fire a prominent or, or discipline a prominent uh, a morning host or something, there'll be reverberations that they fear through their donor base, right? That they'll hear back, uh, you know, uh, from their, from especially large uh, and, and powerful donors uh, that, that, that uh, you know, well, why did you discipline this person? I think we saw things like that happen at WNYC within the last uh, year or two as well, which is a prominent, mm -hmm. prominent uh, station in the public radio system here uh, in the U S um, but certainly it happens. I think almost anywhere where, where there's this uh, unequal distribution of power, if you will. Right. <laughs> um, and, and absolutely. Often, uh, the, the power of the organization is aligned with the more powerful individuals within it. And, and but it seems to me, you know, I've been I've certainly been following this to some extent. Uh, really, the number of reports that I've seen have, have really gone up in, in 2020. Um, is it because that uh, the folks working at these stations are starting to to realize they're not alone? Yeah, you know, I think that's part of it. Um, I I think that also just with the Me Too movement and, you know, what the conversations that have come out from that movement, uh, you know, even uh, public media industry dealt with some of those types of allegations and some folks were um, asked, you know, to leave their post. Uh, the host of, I believe, Prairie Home Companion was one of those individuals. And so... I think that uh, you have a mix of things. First of all, we recognize, you know, public media, a lot of us are in this industry because of the service that we provide our communities. And our organizations get a whole lot of money from our from members. Uh, we ask them to give large and small amounts in support of the work that we do. Uh, but when an organization internally is having some, you know, workplace issues, how are we really to ensure that we're meeting our mission? Um, how can we publicly say that we believe in civility and we believe in, you know, equity and inclusion and, and all these things, um, but internally we're not seeing that uh, taking place. So that, uh, you know, that really makes for, a, you know, an interesting conversation. And when, if the conversation doesn't happen, then you're seeing, you know, frontline staff members who have very little power to make change at their organizations go public and share with their communities or share out with the industry what people are experiencing. And, you know, these instances are not unique. These are things that have been taking place um, probably for decades. Mm -hmm. 
in our industry. But because, uh, you know, we, we, because leadership is a lot of people have been, a lot of the leaders in our industry have been in public media so long. Uh, they've grown up in this industry. They've had the opportunity to shape it. You know, there, there has been a whole lot of, you know, we need to change, we need to fix this. And so now you are seeing frontline staff that are saying this is enough is enough. We need to really, um, be because we want to serve our, our community well, we need to fix our house internally. And there's no shame in that if um, if the organization's leadership is willing to change. You know, there is no shame in saying we messed up, we screwed up, and we should have been doing better. In fact, I think a lot of frontline staff members and people who have been in the industry for so long who've been wanting to see this change would really love to hear, uh, you know, come from leadership, hear some talking points from leadership that are really sincerely about let's, let's change. Uh, we have to be better as an institution. We have to uphold the values that we expect from our communities. And we can't do that until we have these difficult conversations. And so what kind of action is public media for all um, encouraging, right? What, what are you, what are you, what is sort of your, your uh, action plan at this time? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I just want to make sure that uh, this public media for all coalition in action, uh, we have a day of action and education uh, scheduled for November 10th. It's a Tuesday. We are going to be hosting a webinar that day is open. It is open to all people in public media, as well as people who are fans of public media. And so I know a lot of your listeners are community radio, college radio, and a lot of you are probably fans of public media too. So you are invited to join to join us on this day. And what we want listeners to do is we want listeners to ask their public media stations in their communities, what are they doing to achieve diversity, equity, inclusion within their organizations? What are they doing to ensure that they are connecting with marginalized communities? And uh, how are they going to uh, keep those connections going? And so um, the other things that we're, we're really trying to emphasize on this day of action is, first of all, we want people of color in our industry to take the day off. We mm. want them to call in sick and tired and say, I need rest. I have been doing this work as maybe one of a few people of color in my organization and I need this day for myself. And so we're really promoting that. But we also want uh, white people in the industry to look within themselves, to look at what uh, things they have done or maybe even haven't done that they themselves need to address, whether that's um, you know not speaking up when noticing microaggressive action or behavior, um, not really looking to people of color as um, you know in terms of providing opportunities for them, promoting them, uh, providing opportunities for professional development. Uh, and we want organizations to take our pledge. And part of our pledge, uh, you know, we're asking leaders to apologize. We're asking specifically white leaders and white individuals um, of these organizations to apologize for the past, um, what hasn't taken place, especially if their workplace has seen some of these tumultuous times. Um, we're really wanting them to, to own that uh, and so, you know, those are just some of the things that we're looking to uh, on November 10th. 
You know, asking white leaders to apologize, I think, is is interesting and powerful. Um, as someone who identifies as, as a white person myself here, um, you know, I think it is something where, you know, I think it, it can seem symbolic on a level, but to me, I think it, it is more than that. And I, I'll go out on a limb here and I'll say, I'll suspect that every white leader has something to apologize for, whether they yes. are aware of it, right, in the moment, or, or have done the work to sort of identify their past actions or their present actions as the case may be and the effects it has right you know that yeah. that is hard you know in which you know they're at the very least uh socialized not always to recognize or to be as aware of um and it seems to me that can be a very powerful start um uh, towards towards things although certainly not at all uh, in and of itself sufficient and you know i wonder you know speaking you know to folks, you know, again, who may who identify as white, who are working within uh, public media of all different sorts, you know, it's, I think that encouragement to, to themselves uh, be part of the solution is really important, right? Because it's, it's at least my perception that very often uh, the conversation has not, you know, has not been, uh, white people have not involved themselves shall we say <laughs> exactly right and i'll 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 say this i'm biracial so i'm i'm you know i'm um african and white i'm kenyan and white and i grew up in a predominantly white community i have a white parent i have white grandparents and so i know how difficult it is to self-assess uh, and really reflect on past harms that have been committed um, toward people of color, toward black people specifically. And, um, you know, it's a whole nother conversation in talking about, uh, you know, the differences between being black in this country and being uh, an African immigrant in this country. Mm. But there are there there that's a whole nother conversation. But there's <laughs> some alignment there. Um, I think I think you're you hit it on the head in that, you know, this country, if we could recognize the importance um, and the value of an apology, a truly sincere, deeply reflective, inner reflective apology, there we might be in a better place in this country. And, um, you know, so it really takes a, a leader to do that soul searching and have that difficult um, inner conversation in recognizing, you know, I'm a white person. I don't, this is hard for me. This is very uncomfortable for me, but I want to see change. I don't want to continue to feel um, like I am, I am intentionally harming other people. And, um, you know, in order to do that, there has to be some vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think we live in a country and in a world where vulnerability is seen is seen as a weakness. And, uh, you know, that is just not the way that we can behave if we want to see change in, in our lives. We have to recognize that this vulnerability is so crucial to allowing for healing, uh, both both self-healing and healing for people of color who have been on re the receiving end of oppression for centuries. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really agree. And, you know, it's also I, I keep seeing is it's in, in, in this is true in public media as it is elsewhere. It's also it is time for white people to make room. Um, exactly. And I, and I, 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 
I, I, I assume that's probably part of your, 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 your program or your, at least some of your recommendations for white allies, but I think it does require this also to come out of the mouth of somebody who identifies as white. Um, because, you know, I can say for myself, you know, it, it, is, it is very easy to take your, your privilege in place for granted and to think that you have a promotion or even a job, uh, you know, speaking very much about, because this is a jobs-related kind of question, that, that you have that coming. Right, that you've done the work, that you've, um, you know, you, you've you've earned the merit, you've done what you're supposed to within the meritocracy, without considering the fact of what even what factors align to put you in that place to begin with. Um, exactly. So it's it's about dismantling um, the privilege and in looking at what have you been privy to, what uh, path has been. Uh, made for you just naturally in in our industry and in this country and in really in any workplace that we look at um, and finding ways to create those same paths to leadership, um, those safe, same paths to safety, those same paths to economic stability, to professional development, to education uh, for marginalized people. I mean, you know, if if, it, if that means you do have to make room, you might it might require you to step down or step away uh, from from the position that you hold to make space for a person of color to take that role. In fact, I had a, an email conversation with a GM, and I said, and I knew that this person was planning to retire within the next few years, and I said, you absolutely can do the work now to ensure that the person who takes your place is a person of color. And you have to intentionally do that work. You can't hope that it, that the right person will come up to, to your organization as you're leaving and say, I have what it takes um, to lead this organization. It just doesn't work that way. Um, if it did, again, we wouldn't have those issues in our industry, right? We wouldn't have a pipeline, this quote unquote pipeline problem in, a, in getting more people of color and women into leadership positions. So, uh, so I told him, I said, you need to start now in developing what that looks like. Talk with your board about it, you know, talk with your board about it and, and come up with a plan to start grooming um, someone to, to help, um, ensure that you are able to diversify at the top of the organization. I think, you know, for a lot of folks, you know, they think about public media as being, you know, a good of a liberal society, right? Um, and there's this common, you know, and, and, and often, you know, especially, I mean, these days, if, if you tune into a lot of, of public radio in particular, um, you know, you hear many more voices from people of people of color, right? And there's a, there's a tendency just to think, well, then, obviously, you know, uh, you know, and then, of course, from the, the, the political conservatives often accuse uh, public media of being, uh, being politically liberal, right? Um, and, and, uh, you know, part of, of, of these, these efforts of, of, of diversity and inclusion and equity that, that are sometimes come in, frankly, for, for reactionary criticism from, from uh, the politically conservative and the right, ring, right wing. And so I think it's probably to some extent also a little bit um, surprising or jarring to a lot of, uh, to some public radio and media consumers that, uh, in fact, uh, what you see on the surface, uh, is, is not necessarily reflective of what's, what's actually happening. Um, and, yes. you know, and, and so 
I'm kind of curious, you know, and I sort of, we sort of touched on this, but but as as a listener or as somebody, you know, who may be a member supporter of, of a public media station or, or more, how can you, what can you do to influence that station, to, to influence really the media that, that, to something that, you, that you support and that you rely on every day? Uh, how do you influence them to be better? Um, so I, I am a firm believer and I have seen uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease mentality from audience members. I have seen, uh, you know, if, if, a, um, if someone doesn't like a program on our station and they, you know, they just, they just don't like it for whatever reason, um, a lot of times if, if they continue or if they get some people to, to bring that ish, that issue, that idea or whatever they don't like to more folks, um, at least our, you know, the, the, the circles that I was in, uh, the GMs or the leaders would take a look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's not to say, you know, I, I worked at a station and we were accused of being liberal and we were also accused of being too conservative. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, we always looked at that as we were doing our jobs. You know, we were being, we were staying in the middle. Now we have to recognize too, there's a lot of talk in our, in media, just in general, around objectivity and um, is objectivity true can can we truly remain objective um, and who is responsible for uh, for maintaining objectivity I think we have to recognize that media is a gate there are many gatekeepers in media uh, whether they're editors whether they're leaders uh, whether they're reporters hosts who choose uh, not to uh, interview or report on certain things. And um, we have to really look into those aspects more clearly. Um, you know, we also have to look at, you know, th- a lot of the, we know that the the White House has put, you know, its foot down on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Um, and, you know, having national funding, uh, you know, taken away uh, from organizations that use, you know, government dollars for those types of trainings. Um, but really, you know, what what does that mean for our country if we're not being able to look at the history of this, this country and the impact that some of the decisions, uh, some, the, the system that we live in has had on continuing to oppress people of color. And so, um, what am I trying to say? Uh, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, our industry has an opportunity to uh, really ensure that media, what the future of media looks like. And uh, that's going to make, that's going to, we're going to need people um, from groups that have been continually oppressed to, to help in that decision-making mm-hmm. to help, uh, help shape what media looks like. And uh, you know, if we can't look internally and if we can't, if we don't see diversity internally, then there's no way we're going to be able to, to address those sorts of things um, in media until, you know, we have diversity at all levels. 
Yeah, and I think you know you mentioned very specifically you know you can communicate directly with with a station, and you know I've I worked in community radio, but in, in programming I was also an advisor to a college radio station for many years, and so I was a recipient right of of listener and supporter uh, correspondence, uh, shall we say? And sometimes, and, and 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 you know as it is with 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 many things, the negative correspondence tends to stick out in your mind more than the positive, uh, unfortunately due to human psychology. And sometimes, right, it it, it you know. You, I think as a listener, you have to understand that, um, you know, there's somebody who maybe uh, does not have the same interests as you or the same uh, focus on seeing uh, diversity and inclusion and and, and equity, uh, who is also (laughs) making those communications to stations and possibly complaining about things that they hear on air uh, when they hear something which uh, comes from a different uh, cultural back uh, perspective, right? Um, And it seems like it would be important to, to make those, you know, to give both the criticisms and also uh, the praise, you know, when, when you've heard things and you, that you can, where you can perceive those efforts, right? Cause sometimes you, you can, I think on air um, is, is to both give the praise and as well also give articulate criticism, right? Constructive criticism, right? Not, you know, doing your best to kind of uh, I, I, probably deliver a message that is more likely to be, to be, to be heard and received. I would suspect, does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, um, I the the thing I I try to remind people when they feel uncomfortable about hearing the truth um, is that at the end of the day, the work that I do um, in in diversity, equity, inclusion, and what we're really trying to achieve through public media for all is an understanding that uh, we need to focus on humanity and ensuring that all people have access, um, the same access that white people have had to um, things then that, you know, now more than ever. And so that means, again, equity um, isn't a handout to people of color. It is giving people of color power to tell the stories Um, themselves about their communities, not having a white person go into the community and make assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, it's about us being able to tell our own stories and us having the power and not the pushback that we continually receive to tell those stories in the way that we want to. And that just might make the, you know, white audience member feel very uncomfortable, but that's not our job to help ensure that they feel okay. Um, It's really our job to make sure that black people, when they hear a story about their community, um, that they, uh, that the story is told accurately and that there is sincerity around, uh, you know, that reporting, that there is integrity around that reporting. And, um, you know, we can't continue to just hold people's hands, um, you know, as we're as as stories are told around the the murders of black and brown people by the police in communities across this country. Uh, If you if you don't like what you're hearing, uh, as a white person, then it's really upon you to change that um, narrative. And, and that means you have to do some work around that. And if you have to start with yourself, please, by all means, do that. And then don't, you know, don't hold back when it comes to other what you're hearing from other people. Now, I don't I don't look at humanity and justice as political issues. I look at those things as natural human issues. And, um, you know, so we have to start pulling apart the argument around 
those things, you know, and it's, it's, it's going to take a lot of effort and it's going to take, you know, a coalition of people like public media for all to at least look in it at, at our industry as a start. If we want to make progress, you know, if we want to make changes, larger scale changes within our country. Yeah, absolutely. Sway. How are you, how are you engaging folks who are, who are working in, in public media at this time? Uh, how are you encouraging them to, to participate in, in, in this, uh, in this effort, really, frankly, to, to improve the medium? Yeah, uh, we're, we're doing a whole lot of social media campaigns. Uh, I have the privilege of working uh, as a consultant for Greater Public, which is an affinity organization of public media that helps stations uh, through fundraising challenges, membership uh, challenges, and uh, some, you know, looking at trends in our industry. And so through my work with them, I've been hosting town halls for uh, BIPOC members in the public media industry and really spreading the word about, uh, you know, why we as people of color need to come together and address um, kind of the trauma that we've been dealing with in our industry and outside of our workplaces too, and really find uh, strength in one another. And I think that that is really helping create spa a space that has never existed for people of color in our industry. Um, but we're going to social media. We have been uh, reaching out to general managers and HR leaders uh, at specific organizations and people who have come to us and they, they don't know how to bring this topic to their organizations. We are willing to do that on their behalf because we don't want them to uh, have, you know, experienced any form of retaliation. And, you know, I think it's so sad uh, still that there's people in, in our industry, uh, primarily black individuals in our industry, who are so afraid to bring up concerns because they do feel like they will experience retaliation. That says a lot. It says mm -hmm. a lot about how far um, we have to go in our industry. And um, so we're just, we just continue to bring up whether instances that are taking place that are being shared on like Medium or other similar platforms. Uh, we, we try to amplify what's happening at other organizations, but we also want to highlight, you know, organizations and stations that are really doing the work that they, that are recognizing that it, you have to talk about race every single day. You know, you have to talk about um, what it looks, what oppression looks like every single day. And like I said, it may make may it may make white people feel uncomfortable, but um, we can't continue to let their discomfort um, get in the way of progress. Absolutely, and and I can't imagine that the discomfort that that white people feel, even even it's remotely similar. Unfortunately, right, and sadly, uh, mm -hmm. and I think a little bit of discomfort is a very small price to pay uh, to help move forward. I mean not just, you know, public media, but ultimately our culture at large forward uh, many steps that it, that it needs to, to move forward. And it was interesting that, that you know, it, that you're working in ways to, to, to assist and have dialogue with uh, station leadership, uh, station human resources as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that it sounds like this is an yeah. as well active resource, uh, active uh, outreach to, to provide not just 
the criticism, which which is important. You know, I, I don't want to, I do not want to undermine the value of of identifying problems and and bringing them to light and 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 using sunshine uh, through this. But but it sounds like you're also hoping to provide uh, an outreach to, to help them do better, uh, even, you know, maybe in some cases they don't like, they don't like the advice. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, you know, we're, we're making a lot of friends along the way, which is a good thing. I'm sure there are organizations and stations who just aren't ready to take that commit, make that commitment. And, you know, look, I get it. You know, the, our industry is massive uh, it's, 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 I don't want to call it massive. I mean, it is, it is fairly small, but everybody knows everyone for mm-hmm. the most part. And we have, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we've had the, we've, uh, you know, Sachi has done amazing work in developing this, this, you know, prototype for, for change. And she's really taking the message to her new organization at OPB and they signed up. You know, Steve Bass is the GM of OPB, and he uh, wrote his organization wrote a press release around why they signed up for Public mm-hmm. Media for All. So we're really, uh, you know, trying to capitalize on the people in our industry who get it, who want to see the changes, and saying, you know, to other stations and, and leaders, what are you going to do uh, if you don't want to sign up for this? Then at least tell us what are you going to do to to make changes. And for those who are not in Oregon, OPB is Oregon Public Broadcasting, and it would seem to me that 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 is an an, an important uh, part of this, right? Is that because certainly station leaders uh, they talk to each other, <laughs> they have organizations uh, <laughs> and bring them together. Yes, they do on a regular basis, and where they do strategize and they go over, um, you know, ways in which they can collectively help each other through different issues and in problem solving, and having uh, prominent leaders uh, within public media sign on it would seem to be would 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 really help to kind of uh, it provides peer pressure frankly um and peer pressure yes, it can does. Be and we <laughs> we are capitalizing on that as much as we can of course absolutely um is there anything we didn't cover um but is there anything that that you didn't get a chance to, to talk about or mention that, that you want to be sure to get in yeah, I just um knowing your audience, I do want to make sure that, you know, again, community level uh community stations, college radio stations are really the feeders to public media stations and also to commercial radio and media. And so if I am speaking to uh, Black and Latino and Indigenous uh, radio people, you know, who really are feeling uncertain about their future in this medium, I just want to speak specifically to you. Find a mentor, uh, find someone who looks like you, who is doing this work, and do not stop because um, it, it is going to you know, again, we need people like you to be uh, very strong in our industry, to do whatever it takes to uh, do do that work. You know, get in your community, tell your family, tell your friends, don't let your way. And um, if you want to find, you know, if you eventually want to be a leader in this industry, then, like I said, find a mentor who's doing the work 
and have them show you the ropes. And if you find that the mentor, whoever you have isn't working, don't stick with them. Find someone who you can be comfortable with, who you can have conversations with. And uh, honestly, the some of the best mentors I've had have been people who look like me, uh, who've had similar experiences as me, and I could be very honest with them about what I wanted, and they helped me get there. I really appreciate you sending that message to many of our listeners at Community and College Stations, I, um, and, and it's very good advice. And so, uh, once again, you're having your day for action on November the 10th, um, and folks can certainly, uh, can you repeat your website for us, please? Sure. It's publicmediaforall.com. Publicmediaforall.com. Sway Stewart is on the main organizing committee for Public Media for All. I really appreciate you taking some time to join Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for having me. Paul, thank you again for your conversation with Sway Stewart, who is a member of the main organizing committee uh, for Public Media for All, which is pushing for racial diversity and more justice inside of public media institutions. Uh, Sway also mentioned uh, her fellow organizer, Sachi Kobayashi, who I'm sure Radio Survivor will have on as a guest uh, as soon as possible. Thank you both uh, for making time on Radio Survivor. Paul, um, it's really interesting. That conversation you know, brings up a lot of issues around power in the media. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but thinking about, um, well, you know, listeners have, well, okay, part of what I want to talk about a little bit here at the end is that so much of, and this rang true for me in my experience at other radio stations that aren't, that aren't members of the public media landscape, that um, sometimes the, 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 the person at the workplace who is causing the most problems also is a person who is popular on the air and who's been on the air for a long time. And there's often a reluctance to deal with that individual by the boss because of the money that they bring in. And it, this, is, this is so huge of an yeah. issue. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's you know we see this issue. I think this issue of power um, we see throughout the media industry. It's similar, certainly not exclusive to public media, you know. And, and I think, and ultimately, in any organization in which uh, which is hierarchical, in which power is held disproportionately in the organization and often concentrated either through the strict hierarchy, you know, somebody has like a manager, director, CEO title, or, uh, you know, has a lot of the, uh, has a lot of uh, just overall, um, a lot of the organizations invested in them. Um, we see this, right? And and it's, I think to some people, it's sadder to hear that public media is, is no more immune to it than, than anywhere else. But but it's certainly true. Well, of course, there. don't be. You shouldn't be surprised at all. Now, Paul, you were you were also you were helping me remember that listeners have a lot of power in this. Well, right. I mean, well. and and it cuts both ways, right? Uh, and you know, so on the one hand, you know, one of the reasons that that uh, you know CEOs and program directors are reticent to discipline um, popular on-air personalities is because they do receive that listener and donor backlash, right? And that they, it's not reliable that uh, many of the 
the folks who have the backlash, who are who are upset that their favorite morning show personality is is being taken off the air, uh, necessarily you know share the progressive values of diversity, equity, and inclusion in a broad sense, right? That they that they themselves. <laughs> I would I would make it worse than that. I would say that they do. As long as it doesn't, uh, as, right. long as it doesn't gore their state. Right, well, right. Past, I mean, right. What, what, right. That they, they do that a they, name until it, until they're challenged to give up something. Right. That, like. that they that they really haven't examined their own privilege uh, yeah, in a lot of ways. That, that's uh, exactly. exactly. You know, but but that it, it does swing the other way as well. Right. So be a good ally if you're a listener and. Uh, and you, you know, you learn about these issues at your radio station. This I mean, goes- I mean, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say yes, especially if it's an old white guy. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> what we keep seeing time and time again is that uh, there's a high chance those allegations are true. And if you are that old white guy, and I doubt any old white guy who's a public radio personality is listening to us right now, it's uh, always possible. I'm going to say, I'm an old white you know, guy. you're an old white guy. Who take the opportunity to retire. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, not that old. No one's retiring here anytime. You know, so. Um, uh, so, but but really, you know, in that in that, you know, because uh, when, when we talked about making way, I mean, I think it's really it's really it's really true, in that you know, public media, all media, we need n- new voices, we right. need well, new perspectives, we need new talent coming in, and and if and if these places are held in monopoly by what is ultimately a very narrow class of people. Um, exactly. It, it really has tremendously deleterious well, effects. And I want to mention here, this is not a, this is not to um, reduce the impact of the interview or to change people's minds. But one of the things that I can't help thinking about with this story, also something that I know um, Matthew Lassar helped me to understand was an important factor in the struggle over Pacifica Radio in the late 1990s going on till today, or all of it. It's that um, in the United States, people who love community media are fighting over scraps mm-hmm. and being forced uh, into uh, adversarial relationships just by the tiny nature of the non-commercial media landscape. And it doesn't have to be that way. It, it would be much preferable for everybody who's good at this work to have a job in non-commercial media so that the, the white people who are good at this work can keep their jobs and continue to grow into their expertise as well as there being doors wide open for entry-level work as well as uh, better paying work as well as leadership opportunities as well as you know mentoring and growth for the people of color that have been shut out of the institutions for for generations and uh it, it would be awful nice it'd be awful nice if we could have both well ultimately what we need is a larger cache of experienced people and you only get experience one way yeah. right um and that i think you know and and certainly you know the star system as it exists does not need to exist in the way that it does that the, those are choices um, and certainly there are people within public media who, whose individual salaries would fund multiple positions uh, <laughs> as, yeah, well put. <laughs> as frontline supporter, as frontline reporters and, and probably in multiple 
you know, good living wage positions, right? Not, not, you know, uh, and, and, and these are all things that, that, that I think we, we can think about. And those of us who, who obviously are more engaged in community media, you know, the, the star system tends to be a little less pernicious here uh, and the salaries certainly are not nearly, not nearly as large, uh, but we can still consider the same dynamics and think about how they play out and, and, and be, thoughtful and critical about how they play out. Yeah, I mean, it's actually an entirely different story if we take our view that we've learned from this interview today about um, having better racial diversity inside of your media organization and turn our eyes towards community media. And now we're faced with the really difficult problem is that uh, marginalized people can't afford to volunteer at community media organizations at the same rate that the privileged people uh, who don't have to worry about rent and food and childcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the same way. In the same way, right. Uh, have, have more time and more privilege to be a part of these media organizations. And I think that's, um, you know, we've talked about that on Razor Survivor yeah. before, and we'll talk about it in the future. You know, there's plenty more episodes where this one came from. Uh, I want to thank our guests again today uh, for, for starting the conversation. Uh, we wish them uh, the best of luck with their, uh, with their organizing event and, and, all and, and, place on- yeah, exactly taking place on November 10th their day of action for public media for all Radio Survivor is online at radiosurvivor.com where you can find show notes for today's episode as well as um, ways to listen to the podcast if you're listening on the radio we are a podcast that airs every week as well you can hear us both at radiosurvivor.com or you can subscribe to radio survivor wherever you get your podcasts on the internet we here at radio survivor would love to hear from you uh, about anything that we discussed either on today's episode or any previous episode or the issues that we care about here, which is community radio, non-commercial radio, college radio, and the American media landscape. Our email address, where you can communicate with us, is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We're also on social medias. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Radio Survivor is uh, all of those. That's our handle everywhere. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more about how you can strengthen the project, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Paul Reismandel, who produced today's episode, my name is Eric Klein. Radio Survivor is also a project built and run by Matthew Lassar and Jennifer Waits. And we all thank you so much for listening this week. We'll be back here at the same time next week with more stories of community radio, college radio, non-commercial radio, low-power FM, and the history of uh, radio all around the world. So uh, thank you so much for listening.